Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Louis Theroux and Aaron Fellows of Mindhouse Productions about how they're developing new talent and documentaries alongside the authored shows Theroux is known for. And from Warner Brothers reality supremo Mark Darnell about his experiences on American Idol, Hell's Kitchen and more and why he believes TV needs to take big swings on new formats rather than rebooting existing ones. Acclaimed documentarian Louis Theroux set up his own company, Mindhouse Productions, three years ago, together with his wife, the TV director Nancy Strang, and long-term exec producing partner Aaron Fellows. The firm is behind series including Louis Theroux interviews, which aired on the BBC recently, featuring subjects including Stormzy, Judy Dench and Bear Grylls, and which has now been commissioned for a second season. Mindhouse is also lining up a documentary about YouTuber, rapper and boxer KSI and others in which Theroux takes a back seat, including a docuseries on the Lockerbie bombing for Sky, having already made Gods of Snooker for the BBC and Sex Actually for Channel 4. Theroux and Fellows spoke to Emma Cox at C21's Content London last month about some of these projects, plus how they're developing new talent and documentary ideas alongside the authored programmes Theroux is known for globally. I'd like to introduce you to the co-founders and creative directors of Mindhouse Productions, Louis Theroux and Aaron Fellows. Founded in 2019, so a relatively new company. Louis, of course, you will recognise, I'm sure, from being a stalwart of British TV over many, many, many years. But today we're going to find out a little bit about Mindhouse, what they have in the pipeline and what they have coming up. Uh, But without further ado, welcome, both of you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Hello, everyone. Louis, as I say, we know your face very well, of course, uh, but tell us a little bit more about Mindhouse and, and how it came about and why you wanted to make your own production company. So uh, uh, my wife basically made me do it. <laughs> I was at the BBC for um, best part of <clears throat> 25 years and um, I was sort of a quite a happy excuse me, factory sort of wage slave. Um, <laughs> You know, I, li- I like that whole kind of Soviet atmosphere, like of, you know, you go in and, and, and you, there's, there's no, no, not much sense of hierarchy and, you know, you're just there toiling alongside everyone else. And then she was like, well, you know, you've been doing this such a long time. Like, have you ever thought about <coughs> owning some of your own programs and actually making programs that you're not in? And I was like, yeah, I've thought about it, but that probably involves complicated business stuff that I wouldn't really understand. And then around the same time, I met Aaron, and I think the other thing that was holding me back was having the right collaborators. So without going into all the detail, I thought Aaron was brilliant, my wife Nancy is brilliant, and with, with, you know, with the sense of that, and then a fourth person came along, Sophie Ardern. And so the idea really was <clears throat> partly to make content that we could own and have some control over, as opposed to giving it, and this is a slight side note, but you know, at one moment when I was on the plane and I was flying to location, and I noticed there was some from BBC Studios who was in business class, and I was in economy. <laughs> and it was just a really weird penny drop moment. I was like, so we make the programs and fly economy, and then you sell the programs, and you are like supping on champagne, and it was a weird kind of like matrix, like, oh, I'm seeing behind the veil. And he's like, why shouldn't I, you know, the people who make the programs be living high off the hog and, and eating salted peanuts, you know, until they get sick. <laughs> Sorry, that was my little um, angry socialist rant. But um, the point being that 
all, the main thing really was I wanted to um, make programs that I wouldn't necessarily be in. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. So we've just, well, we're still in the middle of a run of Louis interviews at the moment. You may have seen Louis going viral for inadvertently offending um, a stalwart of British acting and, and so on. Um, but also what people may not realise, some of the programmes that have already gone out by you guys, was The Incredible Gods of Snooker, which I cannot recommend highly enough if you haven't seen it. Um, Sex Actually with Alice Levine, The Bambas, Murder at the Farm. As you say, lots of programmes that, that you don't front. Um, Aaron, can you talk me a bit through, from your point of view, that the structure of the company and what what is I suppose the aim of Mindhouse um, yeah I'll give it a go um, I, I suppose when uh, what you get from Louis's programs generally the, the the kind of stuff he does on screen is complex stories but told uh, in an entertaining way and told for big audiences I, I think the last thing we want to do is kind of small niche documentaries that no one watches um, and so I suppose what Mindhouse gives us the opportunity to do is look at all of the ideas we would discuss anyway and just think, well, how do we want to tell this story? Does Louis want to do it or is Louis the right person? Can someone else front it? Or actually, is it more of a retrospective story which you want to tell as a box set? Or is it an observational documentary where you don't need an on-screen uh, presenter to help tell the story? And so all of the ideas uh, which come to us now or what, uh, that we speak about um, at Mindhouse goes through that process and we just kind of talk about the things that we want to do and how we're going to do it um, and that's it in a nutshell really and what do the coming months look like for you what do you have in the pipeline in the pipeline well we've got an exclusive <laughs> announcement don't we yeah could go for it do we can we have a drum roll I don't know if I'm very good at drum rolls <laughs> is it? Do they... <laughs> hang on there we go I can it's not, it's not that exciting <laughs> Uh, well, so I've had this series of interviews called Louis Through Interviews, and we can exclusively reveal that we've been recommissioned to do more of those. Uh, thank yes. you very much. Thank you. And I will, like, um, I Who will, might you be looking for, Louis? Have well, we we're looking names? for more iconic and, 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 you know, intriguing, multifaceted people, you know, with, with, with you know, sort of celebrities with something to say. And, and for those who don't know, uh, in the first series, which is on iPlayer, that's my plug. Stormzy was the first one, and then we also have Dame Judi Dench and Bear Grylls, and the last one to go out features Rita Ora. But for me, it was a big change of, and maybe something that I, I don't know if I would have done it if I'd stayed within uh, the BBC working in-house, but I, I'm aware that there's a sort of healthy sense of financial pressure. I don't mean that to sound, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Like, but sometimes when your back's against the wall, or at least you feel this sort of, the, the cold blast of, um, actual be bills needing to be paid, you, you, it forces you to be creative and think differently. And um, I just know that we were, you know, we, we took on this sort of ch challenge of sort of re slightly reinventing the chat show format by mixing in documentary, and that's been really fun and different for, for me. And so to do some more is very exciting. I think it's a good point, actually, just the, the, the form of um, the interview series, because I think we probably wouldn't have done it, actually, at BBC, uh, when we were within the BBC. And it was just trying to think of, well, how do we kind of look into names or people who Louis might be interested in, but how can we do it in a way which feels, I don't know, authentic to us? Mm -hmm. So not a shiny floor show, it's not Parkinson, it's not um, Graham Norton. How do we do it which still feels like us, but um, actually we don't demand so much time of people, so you're not filming for people with people yeah. for like 10 or 15 days or something, you can do it 
in yeah, a quite turn small, it around quickly. And yeah. the and the question people like well Elon Musk would be good, wouldn't he? Uh, Beyonce, Dave Chappelle, big names um, who you just feel like maybe you, there's something there that hasn't really you haven't quite seen yet. But what's interesting about your current series, I think, is that, of course, Judy Dench doesn't do many interviews. That's fascinating. Not many people perhaps even would have known who Youngblood was, though, mm -hmm. and yet that was interesting. So I'm assuming that you're aiming for a, a mix again. Uh, yes, definitely a mix. And I think, um, yeah, and in fact, in some ways, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's, it's the different... I mean, to Youngblood's fan base, it, he's the most important man in their lives. And, 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 and then Dame Judy Dench, obviously is a legend. I think that was uh, a revelation to me as well, the idea, because I'd worried, because she's on the older end of the, of the guests that we've, that we've booked, I thought, well, you know, is there a, um, you know, will they, at the end, you know, we're kind of running around doing who knows what, the splits, high kicks, and in fact, she brought the energy, uh, every bit of energy that you would hope for and more, so it's brilliant. In a world in which Celebrities are increasingly surrounded by PRs and the spin machine and so on. Um, I would imagine there's a certain amount of trust in your name being attached to a project, whether you are in front of the camera or not. But what are those discussions like? Do you agree to any kind of PR control? Do you give them questions beforehand? How does that work? Do you want to... I mean, that's, basically, there's no question approval and there's no editorial approval. So, so in, in a sense, we can say, or whatever, you know, we can follow whatever editorial line we feel is the truest and the most revealing. At the same time, I'm conscious of, like, I feel as though I'm choosing to interview people for whom I have not just a level of interest, but a level of admiration. And so my hope is, at the end of it, that they'll feel pleased with how it's gone. Yeah, from a nuts and bolts point of view, I suppose um, Stormzy was the first person we were talking to. We've been talking to Stormzy for quite a while. And I think we made it. Re I think we used just transparency, which is, if we're going to do a Louis interview with someone, people are going to want to know like the real story. So, and also, I think we've gone to people and said, the idea of this series, it's not a puff piece. We're not here to kind of flog an album or a book or something, even though they can if they want to, you know, at the same time. Um, but all of those questions, which you would usually say to TV teams, the PR teams, would kind of point out, please don't ask that. For us, that was a bit of, you know, we, we want to go into all of the areas which people would expect us to go into. But I think they expect that. I think if, if you're going to be interviewed by Louis, you would kind of expect that. So it was, it was a process, and um, everyone kind of agreed to that. So ordinarily with these celebrities, you go and watch Rita Ora concert or a Youngblood concert or Judy showed you around her home and her local restaurant. What would you do with Elon Musk out of interest? Uh, you know, what wouldn't you do? You go, I mean, maybe you wouldn't go on a rocket. I, I, would you go on a rocket to Mars? That'd take a couple of years. I think you'd, you'd hang out at the Twitter offices and, I mean, he just seems... You, you wouldn't know quite what was going to come out of his mouth, would you? But on a serious note, to do with that, I think part of the pleasure of me making programs that I appear in is that it, it's meant that I have relationships and I've, I've got the opportunity to interview people who then Mindhouse can develop a relationship with. And so... Uh, in lockdown, I made a podcast called Grounded. I mean, tw interviewed 20 uh, fascinating people. One of them was the YouTuber and just general legend and, and kind of cultural icon, KSI, who's got streams in the billions. And that led to conversations with Amazon. And now we've got a featured doc that follows KSI for a year called KSI in Real Life that we've uh, very proudly, you know, been to be, very proud to be involved with. 
There's been other relationships. I mean, I think as much as my own self-fronted output, I'm even more excited to have other, other talent um, fronting projects that I can exec on or just be tangentially involved in. We've also, I think you mentioned uh, Alice Levine, Sex Actually, uh, that there's a second series of that that's going to be released soon. Um, there's people, Joe Wicks, we did a documentary with him uh, on BBC One earlier this year, a young talent called Layla Wright. We're very, I mean, also, I'm 52. I know you, you're shocked you thought I was much younger. But actually, uh, you know, the, my knees aren't what they were. And although I've got an appetite for going to swingers' parties, <laughs> for documentaries, please stop it. <laughs> or... Spending time at a brothel. I spent three weeks at a brothel uh, for a program. And, um, you know, whatever these stories are, like, actually, I'm also aware of the need to sort of, um, well, not just the need, like, I, have, I take huge pleasure in sort of enabling other presenters and, 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 and other filmmakers uh, to do their best work. I've got lots more questions, but we've had lots of questions from the audience, which I think is a lovely thing. So, shall we pause for a couple um, of these? Do you co-produce with other companies, and what would you want them to bring to the table, creatively or commercially, to make it worth your while? Um, yes, we do. And uh, we, we have got something in the moment which we're um, co-producing with a director. It's a feature which hasn't been announced yet. It's a feature we're doing for uh, a British channel in co-production as well with a US channel. And it was a story that me and Louis were really interested in. <clears throat> um, and we started talking to the director and we collaborated and we've made what we think is an amazing documentary, which I can't talk to you very much about. But he, so brought, the, he brought the point, he brought the access. He brought the access. I kept on calling him about the access. And then I think at some point, uh, we realized that we all wanted the film to be made and there was a way that we thought we could all make it together. And so we do quite regularly talk to either independent filmmakers or other production companies who, who might feel it's, a benef it's beneficial to get into a relationship with Mindhouse. And so we're open, especially that, that kind of rare access or uh, yeah, access to a person or into a, a really fantastic story. As opposed to like, <coughs> you know, some vague idea where you think like, well, we could have had that idea, right? Yeah. yeah, totally. Or perhaps if they had an idea and some knowledge and they just needed some help getting their foot in the door with, with the reputation that you have, would that be something you would consider? We, uh, I think so. Like, we're, I, I love to collaborate. Like, so, so that's the bottom line. And I think, we, but we're also bringing a skill set, you know, to do with relationships, abilities to tell stories, being connected with talented people. So um, when you give a piece of a film away, you know, clearly... You, you, there needs to be a true exchange. You know, so, someone needs to be bringing access or, an, or, or some idea that, that's so distinctive that you, know, you couldn't have thought of it of without them. Understood. You mentioned your Grounded podcast, um, and again, some fantastic names, Helena Bonham Carter and Miriam Margulies and, and so on. Um, and somebody's asked on the back of that, do you have any further podcast plans on the horizon, especially after your comment about them being a useful springboard to video format? Uh, you know, nothing, I think... Basically, that's something we've been talking about, and I really did love doing Grounded. Um, it was a sort of, again, that was a new way of working for me. They're still up there on BBC Sounds, so if you want to check them out. Uh, so no, I think nothing's really set in stone at this point, but it's, it's definitely a conversation we're continuing to have. And also, um, we are interested in uh, narrative podcasts, which is something we've nearly done a few times. Um, but haven't done yet. 
And I think it's something which is in the back of our mind, especially with those projects where you, you kind of feel you need to do so much digging. Um, it might be worthwhile to just get some content out of it, and then you, you've got the IP to turn into um, a, a television doc, should you want to. Absolutely. And that actually lends me quite nicely onto the, the next subject. Um, your, your box set style documentary. So again, not Louis fronted, uh, but things like the Bambas that I mentioned earlier and Gods of Snooker and so on. How do you choose those topics? Does it have to be brand new information? Can it be a comprehensive look at quite a well-known story? What is your ethos there? I, I mean, I think all of the above, but I think what it can't be... If, you know, it has to be distinctive, have ambition and scale. If the st every story's been told before, like, or at least most of them have. So if it's terrain that's already been covered, you just have to know that you are, you know, doing it distinctively or with more, more ambition, right? Which is all quite obvious. But I think what's exciting about the streamers is that they're, they're looking globally. So even if maybe a UK audience is familiar with the story, um, that you're, you're, you're telling it to, to the global market and, um, and that, that, that there's more resources, more money that can be put into telling it, telling it with more scale. Would you say? Yeah. Um, when it came to when we did the Bambas for, for Sky, it was because we, we, we had access to lots of recordings which hadn't been used before. And there was this, I suppose, lingering sense that it was, there was potentially a miscarriage of justice and there were still questions being asked. And so it felt there was a reason for making it in the first place rather than treading old ground. It's, the, it's a similar thing with Lockerbie, which we're doing for, for Sky in the UK, which is um, due to be out at some point next year, I think. Um, again, it seem, it's um, an enormous story which hasn't really been told in a kind of um, high production values box set form, I suppose. Um, so when we're talking about these ideas, we do look at what exists, and we do also look at if there's new information, and we kind of weigh it up, depending yeah, on that. Yeah, and I think that's really true, and I also think like, the, the one that was also mentioned was Gods of Tennis, which is sort of the story of um, Bjorn Borg and Billie Jean King and John McEnroe, which is an era of tennis that everyone will be familiar with, but I can't emphasize enough like the idea of just being able to tell a really compelling story, because uh, that, that's fairly well-trodden terrain again, but actually to to tell a story with cliffhangers and characterization and, and, and kind of twists and turns. Um, some of these stories have just been not done brilliantly before. Yeah. That was definitely the case with Snooker. Was, there were, with Gods of Snooker, which went down really well, um, there'd been several programs like I Love Snooker or I Love <laughs> The Crucible, all those kind of, kind of list show types of programs. And I suppose what we did in lots of ways was repackage that in documentary form to give it this a kind of soapy quality with cliffhangers and coming up next week and you know give this narrative all the way through it but a lot of the stories were out there um it, like i say it was just done in a in a more documentary way and also i can't emphasize this enough you don't have to like snooker it just is excellent um let's talk a bit about geography because louis we know that you spent obviously a lot of time in america um and, and are quite fascinated by american culture a lot of Minehouse's productions that we've been talking about have been either, I suppose, quite British. I mean, I don't even know if they play snooker in other countries, do they? But that felt a particularly... They do in China, <laughs> which we thought, like, that's going to be a perfect market. Like, there's more than a billion people. We can retire after we've sold gods of snooker in China, right? We will literally be millionaires. And then it turns out the footage is so expensive to license. 
all that footage from the 80s of the snooker. I never thought, again, I told you I don't have a brilliant business brain. So we could never afford to clear the footage to put it out in China. So it's UK only. Oh, but the go. question is like, yeah, we definitely would like, we have unannounced projects that are very close to being announced that are more US and uh, focused, and, you know, offer US broadcasters and streamers. And that's definitely something we'd like to do more of because, um, yeah, that's a big market. And, you know, I think in general, Netflix, Amazon, HBO, etc., they're a huge resource and they're making amazing content and we want to make, we very much want to be part of that. But, but in terms of that geography, I mean, is it possible just to do a series about a very British small village and something peculiar that happened there that then has global appeal anyway, just because it's an interesting right, story? Yeah. I mean, that's what Netflix told us when we went for a meeting, didn't they? They literally <laughs> said it can be very British, like in a way that's better if it's super British. Because, you, you know, you're also bringing a skill set as a UK-based production that you hopefully will be, that would be unique. And, and, and so we, we're plugged into UK stories, among others. Um, and you know how popular things like Downton are and Bake Off in America, British Bake Off in America. So, and The Crown, like the, we have global, you know, stories that appeal to a global market that are very British, don't we? I also think that um, what's the benefit of us at Mindhouse and still being independent, we can kind of, um, we can decide on a case-by-case -case basis. I think there will always be stories which maybe feel very British, which we'll still do if we really want to do them, uh, but we are leaning into the global stories for obvious kind of business reasons, also obviously because we're interested in the stories. But I don't think we'll completely neglect the British stories. We've just, you know, we've just done a panorama, um, which was about the Champions League uh, final between Liverpool and Real Madrid, and part of that was because we really wanted to tell the story because we were championing, uh, championing new talent on screen, um, and, and that wasn't for necessarily business reasons. So there's, I think, every time we do an idea at the moment, it's because we want to do it. Um, so there'll always be a, a bit of both, I think. But would programmes such as Gods of Tennis and, <clears throat> excuse me, and Lockerbie and KSI, would they be a deliberate attempt to become more global? I think not really. Like, I think we just, in the end, we're trying to make the best programs we can and, and programs that also make sense financially. But, um, you know, Lockerbie, KSI, I mentioned it was just spun off from, I mean, my interests are quite global. And, you know, as you know from my programs, as you mentioned, like, they're quite global. And I'm interested in evergreen stories about the human condition that take you to a place of, kind of emotional and psychological complexity. Like, as much as I love things like, Total Wipeout, I don't know if that's on anymore. I don't know why I said that one. But, you know, uh, I, I'm never we're never gonna make Total Wipeout, the reboot. We, it's just not in our, you know, unless, I don't know. If someone had an amazing idea, but I, I, it's not really what we're good at, I don't think. Unless, like, Donald Trump was on yeah. Wipeout. But, you know, some story about something extraordinary that involved like incredible complex, whether it was sort of true crime or, 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 or sort of some kind of emotional or, or extremism of some kind, um, then, you know, all day, every day. Yes, please. That's because that's what, that's, that's so complicated, emotional, mature stories for a, for a big audience. Let's go back to something you touched upon earlier, which is the decision to either front something or find new talent. So um, David Badil presented Jews Don't Count For You, which I think went out last at all, or last yeah. week. Yep. Um, and we mentioned Alice Levine as well. Um, how do you find those presenters? 
and how, what do they need to be a good fit for you? It's a, it's a mix, isn't it? Do you want to talk about that a bit? Because you were... I feel like I've been talking too much. Well, <laughs> that's fine. Um, I suppose those specific examples, with David Baddiel, um, Jews Don't Count, um, he, he came to us, and Channel 4 came to us to ask us if we would want to develop it into, um, uh, in, into documentary form, that the book very much existed. For us, I suppose, it was a really kind of knotty subject, we were interested in the fact it was a polemic told very much from his point of view and that, um, you know, being aware that lots of people had different opinions. I think what we kind of brought to it, I suppose, was visualising it because it could have been, you know, it could have just been a lecture, I suppose, and that mix of form is something I think we brought to it. Um, and with Alice, it's someone we were interested in working with and could we go into lighter territory slash sexy territory or sexual territory. Um, and especially the types of, the, the type of ground that Louis might have trod um, 20 years ago or something, and just trying to think, well, who else could do that now? Who would bring a different, um, who would come at it from a different angle or bring their own personality to it? And with Alice, what has been amazing, um, for, for me especially, is having worked with Louis for quite a few years, is to think, can you work with on-screen talent in a similar way to, to get good results, which is ultimately involving your on-screen talent all the way through the production process, which for Louis is a completely normal thing to do. But with a lot of on-screen documentary talent, they're slightly sidelined and pushed to the sides. Um, but actually, I think it absolutely pays dividends, doesn't it, yeah. for on-screen talent to be part of the whole process. Can you give a bit more detail about that? What do you mean exactly? So how would Alice, for example, have been involved in, in early discussions? Um, well, again, it's just um, from, from working with... Louis central to everything that he does. Um, the ideas tend to come from him. He's involved in the casting process. He's involved in the development process. The things he's interested in exploring. He's there in the edit. He writes all his VO. So, you know, he is, he, he's the heart of the whole production. And so with Alice, it was, we want you to, you're going to be writing the voiceover, you're going to be involved in casting meetings, which for a lot of documentary on-screen talent, that's quite an unusual thing. But for us, it was, well, we think that might be one of the reasons Louis connects with the audience, because he's gen, gen, genuinely invested mm -hmm. in, in what's on screen. And I think it did work with Alice. I mean, for you, it's a completely normal thing, yeah. though, isn't it? Yeah. And I, think, and I think the question was also about where... They, so I think with Alice, Ian Katz at Channel 4 was a fan of hers. I think there's conversations that go on with commissioners, with channel controllers, where they say who they like, and then we all... There's people we believe in, because we've seen them, or we, they, we're aware of them. But I do think finding the right talent, because there's a bit of a catch-22 where they say, like, well, I don't know if that person's any good, but it may not, they may not have been given a break to prove how good they are. So that's, I think that's a part that... To some extent, we're still figuring out, you know, like how, how do you launch someone who hasn't, been, who hasn't been given an opportunity before? And also, I'm also super aware, like, I know we look like two uh, boring old white guys with glasses, which in fact is the case. Um, that's, I'm not, that's the truth, but um, we are conscious of the need for diverse voices, and we're very much reflecting that and how the company is staffed and, and the kind of talent that we're looking for. So Alice was, was reasonably established, but you would be willing to take on somebody brand new? I would say, yeah, because that's what Layla Wright was. I mean, 
who did the panorama uh, about the Champions League final, and yeah, people who yeah, I mean, but it's a harder sell because channel that makes controllers or, or commissioners nervous. I would say, though, the other thing, what we haven't tended to do is kind of, I don't know, come up with some kind of idea and then go through the Rolodex of TV presenters to see who fits. It has mainly been that we've kind of identified or people have suggested that we meet certain people, and then we've kind of just started to develop things with them from, from scratch just to try and get a sense of what they're into, and that, that seems to have worked so far. A more organic process, it sounds like. And Louis, do you, obviously you announced earlier that uh, you're doing a second series of, of Louis interviews. Do you intend to be on camera as much as, as you have been previously while continuing to work as a creative director on these programmes? Uh, well, one of the enjoyable things about the interview series is I don't travel as much and I can be around and they don't take as long to film. So I suppose in that sense, I've stepped back a little bit and it's been really, you know, so and that means I can be more involved behind the scenes, um, coming up with new ideas. And I do also, worth mentioning, because as much as something like Alice with, with the sex bot or the femme bot, whatever you want to call the bot, um, the bot bot, um, that, that's kind of what I was kind of weird and, and freaky, but you know, th these are stories that also tell you something about life. And 20 years ago, I was making those kinds of programs and they're, and they're still being watched and enjoyed. And you know, it's amazing to me and I'm, something I'm very grateful for that programs have an afterlife and still do business on iPlayer if you get them right. And there's a real longevity. And I, 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 you know, I, I keep working because I enjoy making programs. I enjoy every aspect of it, like being in the field, but I also enjoy being behind the scenes. I enjoy the edit. I enjoy piecing stories together and trying to, it's like solving a puzzle. But a side effect of all of that hard work is that you have a body of work, 50 or 60 hours of programs that is out there, available, gives pleasure to people and also earns an income for me and for the company. Aaron, this question is for both of you, but, but we'll start with Aaron. You, you have started working more, as you um, said earlier, with these big streamers, with these escorts, with Amazon and with Netflix. How are you finding that process? How much of a challenge is it compared to perhaps working with the BBC? And, and what's your strategy there? Well, it, it's, a, it's a learning curve and you kind of realise everyone works in a slightly different way. Um, but you, I think you pretty quickly get to grips with how everyone's systems slightly differ, and ultimately, they're all just trying to tell really riveting stories. So um, it's been actually quite—it's been very pleasurable in lots of ways. After, because because my background is mainly BBC, Channel Four, that kind of thing, um, and obviously the world is much bigger now. And but we're embracing it. Um, so it's been fun. They're all different, though. That's the thing. And actually, an idea, um, you know, Amazon seems to be doing a, a smaller number of things, but with an enormous ambition, but they can also be UK-focused. Netflix is doing many things with a great deal of ambition, but they tend to be more globally focused. And then BBC Channel 4, we know what they are. It's striking that you can also have an idea that you think is brilliant, and it can be turned down by 10 people, and then the 11th person is like, yeah, that's perfect for us. I know that sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but it's quite weird how, like, I think the part of it I'm having to most adapt to is the idea like, you know what, I, I know this is a good idea, so why are we even having a conversation about it? Just give us the money and we'll, and we'll make it. And then it doesn't seem to work like that, which is quite annoying sometimes. You 
would think that they would be falling over themselves, wouldn't you, to, to take on your Sometimes. Programs, we had no. this morning, I'm not going to call anyone up, but we had an idea, of like, this is a great idea, this is perfect, it doesn't even need explanation, just give us the money. And everyone said no, and then today we heard it, it had been commissioned from another company, and we're like, oh, what did we, that, how, what, how come, what did we, what was wrong with, did we fart when we were in the room, or what went wrong, you know? But that's the way it is, you've got to suck it up. There was a beautifully phrased question from somebody in the audience. It was along the words of, how, how do you approach your budgets? Are you willing to sort of splash the cash if, if needs be? I mean, I, I think, look, uh, we, we, I think we are probably guilty of um, maybe not, you know, putting all the money on screen and, and forgetting that it's a company and that actually you, you're supposed to have show a profit at the end of the year. Do you know what I mean? Which I think is probably quite common for creatives that actually, that you don't always, you're like, well, just go and film it. And you know, if we think it might work. So I think that we're attempting to be a bit more disciplined with a certain degree of success. It's hard, it's hard though, isn't it? When you've been coddled at the BBC and you never see a sp spreadsheet, <laughs> right? And then, and also if you're talent, so-called, if you're on presenter, no one tells you you just think, as long as I keep flying economy, you know, uh, everything, all the numbers will add up. And then when they don't, you're like, what, we still, we still haven't made any money even though I fly economy? I don't get it. What more do I have to do? Piers Morgan's up there in first class, right? His company shows a profit. What, what's going wrong? Aaron, what's your take on that? Will you, will you see a massive profit eventually when Louis stops splashing the cash and uh, flying first class? It's a funny one, actually, isn't it? Because um, you just have to weigh it up when the numbers are in front of you. I mean, I suppose that's what we have to do, or kind of I have to do more so, and look at it and you just think, is this, is this worth our while? Is this, is this enough to make the version we'd really want to make? Sometimes it is, and sometimes you have to make kind of concessions, and sometimes you have to say, which we have done, actually, in fairness, we can't make it for that, and we'd love to make it, but there's just, there's just no point making it. And that's really sad. Um, yeah. It's that thing you always go, you've all probably heard this one, but they go, there's a reason they call it show business, not show, show. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, a, it sort of echoes in your head, doesn't it? And on that note... But it's not business, business either. No, it's, it's, it's a delicate balance. Uh, on that note, thank you so much. Exciting times ahead. Thank you very much for sharing the news of the new series of Louis Theroux interviews. And thank you very much for attending. And thank you very, very much to my wonderful panellists, to Louis Theroux and to Aaron Fellows. Thank you very much. Thank you. From American Idol and Hell's Kitchen to The Voice and The Bachelor, Mike Darnell has been part of the biggest unscripted franchises in the world and is considered one of the most influential figures in the history of reality television. Since becoming president of Warner Brothers Unscripted Television in 2013, he's grown the studio's unscripted portfolio exponentially, overseeing more than 1,500 original episodes annually, from primetime formats to talk shows and premium documentaries. Previously, as president of Alternative Entertainment at Fox, he created and oversaw hundreds of primetime series and specials during his nearly 20 years at the network. 
Darnell spoke to C21 chair Mark Rowland at Content London recently about his career and experiences working on titles like Idol, Joe Millionaire, Little Big Shots and more, and why he believes the unscripted industry needs to continue taking big swings on new formats rather than rebooting existing shows. Please welcome Mike Darnell. Wow. So look, in a sense, I'd say where do we start? But I think with Mike, it would be great if you wouldn't mind starting kind of right back at the beginning because TV seems to be in your DNA. Um, (laughs) When did you first get the bug? Well, uh, I was a child actor for a decade. Um, Not a star, but I acted. I did pretty well. And um, when you're a child actor, you think, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. You actually believe that, which, of course, leads to nothing but disaster generally for most child actors. Um, I hit about 20, and um, it had started to slow down. I wasn't quite as cute uh, as I once was, hard to believe. And I was, and I was sitting next to another actor who was probably his mid-40s, which I thought was ancient at the time. And as actors do, you know, you talk about what you did that year, which wasn't much. And um, it just occurred to me to ask him a question. I said, what do you do when you're not acting? And he said, I wait tables. Um, and it scared the shit out of me, just to be quite frank with you. I had an epiphany that day. Um, I was not an actor's actor, uh, meaning I could not see myself like, um, you know, oh, even if I don't work, if I do theater, I'll be fine. That was not me. My range was me sad, me happy. That was about my acting range. And, um, but I loved television my whole life. I was crazy um, in the States. Um, TV Guide was the biggest thing you could read um, when, when I was a kid, uh, if you love TV. And they had a fall preview TV Guide issue. And I would read that TV Guide issue, not only cover to cover, but I would try to predict which shows would be successes and which shows would be failures. You know what? I was pretty good at it. I was nuts in high school. This tells you I was a party animal. I used to go to the um, library and get out the almanac and memorize the top 40 television shows that have been on since the inception of TV, and I still know them. Um, and so that's something I wanted to do, and as I literally left that meeting with this you know, um, actor, called my agent, said, I'm done, I'm not acting anymore, which was a big disappointment to my parents who had invested an enormous amount of time and effort in it. Um, and uh, I just knew I would get something in television. Can I just ask, are there any of the shows that we'd sort of still be able to find on YouTube? Uh, sure, you, yes, of with course. You doing your in fact, I'd like, I'd like you to go all right now and start checking them out. Uh, I had a big guest role on a, a show called Kojak, which with Telly Savalas. Yeah, um, um, God, I'm really dating myself. Um, remember, I was a kid, very young. Um, Sanford and Son, Welcome Back, Cotter, Knott's Landing, um, you know, a ton of commercials. Um, probably did about 50... 60 guest spots and about 50, 60 commercials in my day. Wow, because they, they were all big shows, all big shows. Yeah, they were, I'm not mentioning the not big shows. I also did a lot of crap, just like, <laughs> just like my work in television today. So, so having conquered the acting world, yeah. how, how did you get into the production side okay, of Okay, so uh, I, um, I basically was going to take anything and get my foot in the door, and um, I actually got an internship in the local news um, you know, it works different in Los Angeles for the local Los Angeles news uh, that was not yet a Fox um, 
part of the owned and operated. Um, it was still Metro Media, and it was six months away from becoming Fox. In fact, in, this, in the same building that we were doing the news, um, Joan Rivers, which was the absolute first show that um, Barry Diller and Fox Broadcasting ever put on, uh, was right next door to me. And um, so I got my foot in the door. I hated news, um, but it was TV. And so I, you know, they rarely sent me out on murders because I would put music to it um, and try to make it funny. But I learned things. I learned how to make television quickly. I learned how to grab people's attention and I learned how to do it without a lot of money. And, um, uh, you know, um, and then I translated. So one of the big things back then in Los Angeles, and still big everywhere, is the police would stop if there was a police chase going on. Stop. And it, it, we'd cover it, if it was 10 hours, we'd cover it the entire day. And people would be riveted by it. And when I eventually got to Fox, the network, um, that was one of the first specials I did, was World Scariest Police Chases. I thought, well, if people watch it live, why not? And it was a huge smash for us. But, but back in your news days, I mean, you didn't start as a producer, did you? You were, you were more backroom than no. that. No. You want a specific story. <laughs> so uh, I, was, I was a jack of all trades. Um, they, everything from Messenger to back then, we had something called a script ripper, which was literally at computers, and it would be like four, co five copies, and you'd pull it off and give it to somebody. Um, I have a coworker who was with me up until 30 years, until, for 30 years up until like a year ago, who would tell you that I was bad at all the jobs. Uh, but, I was, but I was learning stuff, and um, I was kind of, you know, trying to make a mark anyway. So in the course of doing that, I stole uh, borrowed uh, like a graphics person and a camera guy and I went out and did a piece I called Life After Reruns which was I went out and interviewed Burt Ward who was Robin in the original Batman and Robin series and uh, it was just a really like where are they now but I thought it was clever and I did it and I put my own voice on it and I carried that tape around with me for six months and showed it to everybody from the guy in maintenance to the head anchor and just so happened, I got kind of lucky. This was, again, dating myself, uh, 1989, and the first really big Batman movie came out with, um, you know, um, Jack Nicholson and, right, okay. And they were looking for anything Batman. And it was a, I want to say it was a Thursday night. And I literally heard um, the anchor say, uh, what about that piece of crap Darnell did? And I, have, of course, had it. And, there, and our news director said, yeah, sure, let's put it on, but we don't want his voice. Now, to be fair, I do not have a voice for news, okay? Not have a voice for those kinds of pieces. But, and I wasn't being arrogant, I had, but I'd worked on it so hard. And I thought, I'm gonna, no, if you're gonna use it, use my voice. And they eventually went, we don't care, just put it on. So I put it on, went pretty well, and um, got some kudos the next day, and people seemed to like it. Meantime, while I was actually then technically the video librarian, it was just my only full-time job there. Um, I was also helping the entertainment reporters and some other reporters, and I was uh, in the middle of talking about, you know, the, um, the sort of whatever story was coming, and, you know, it was helping them. And um, we had a very, very mean, angry uh, um, um, news director, assistant news director, who, and this is not a joke, when he went from the station he was working at and came to our station, that station sent us a black wreath um, to let us know who we were working with. And so, I don't know what made him angry that day, 
But he came over to me, and as I was talking to these entertainment reporters, and um, he said, you're the fucking video librarian, not a producer. Get that through your goddamn head. Well, I'm not real confrontational, but this was in front of people that I wanted to respect me, and I went out of my mind. I went upstairs to his office, and we got no fight, and I said, you know, everybody hates you, and they sent a black wreath, and blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, you think you know more about news than I do? I've been at 15 newsrooms in 12 years, and I'm like, that's because you can't keep a job, and blah, 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 blah. And I walked out of his office, and I'm walking down the stairs, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I guess I'm gonna have to get a new job. I'm sure I'm gonna be fired. And as I'm walking down the stairs, the news director, his boss, her name was Wendy McNeil, you notice I'm not mentioning his name, um, she stopped me and she said, oh, by the way, Barry Diller, who most of you, I hope, know, was the huge sort of creator of Fox and many, many other things, was watching a piece last night. And he said, who did that Batman piece? And she said, it's our video librarian. He said, you should make him a producer. And they made me a producer. <laughs> And that was literally the time, that's a nice story, that's the truth. And, and that was literally the timing of it. And of course, that guy never said anything, but eh, I guess you're a producer now. And then uh, went on his way to other, 20 other jobs in 10 years, I'm sure. But Mike, it very much set the trend for you sticking to your guns, come what may. So then moving on, yes. you then became king of specials for Fox, a very particular type of special. That's true. Um, so you talked a moment ago about car chasing. Sure. But that was only part of some of the shows you created at that point. Yes. Um, I, um, when I, by the time I made it over to Fox Broadcasting, which was seven years later, it took me a long time, um, it was... You know, they'd been around and they had hits. They had Melrose Place and 90210 and um, Simpsons, of course, and Married with Children. Uh, when I moved over there, it wasn't called reality. It was, uh, I was just the director of specials. Um, and um, they're like, you know, always they were in desperate need of stuff. So I went to my news background and also my sense of just whatever works and I don't care how people feel about it. And almost everything I put on the air uh, was considered the end of civilization. I cannot tell you the amount of bad press I would get. And I didn't care as long as the ratings were good. Those titles included When Animals Attack, World's Curious Police Chases, um, When Good Pets Go Bad, um, World's Most Shocking Moments. Um, it, it was endless. I'm sure I'm missing like 15 terrible, terrible An titles. An alien autopsy. I'm sorry, alien autopsy. So when, my first- Where did you get the alien from is a question okay, we do well, need to know. So you mean, you think it wasn't real? Are you crazy? No, I believe every word. <laughs> so I was there for a little while and I actually started out doing regular specials, kind of, you know, like, normal Christmas specials. They were doing real dry stuff when I got there. And this guy walked in and he was working on a show we were doing called Encounters, which was like, kind of like a, a supernatural show, like ghost stories that you would see today. And uh, he said, uh, and internet was fairly new, and he said, I've got this uh, tape you have to see. And it was on PAL format. So he brought in a PAL and he goes, I, I got it off the internet and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, it's 17 minutes of an alien being autopsied from 1947 in Roswell, New Mexico. And I said, put it in. So he did, and that's what it looked like. 17 minutes of an alien being autopsied. And it was pretty intriguing. And so I went to my boss's boss at the time, the president of the network, and uh, CBS had just got 
gotten done doing, uh, they discovered Noah's Ark. And a day later, it was revealed as a hoax to them. And it was like some USC students. It was the whole thing. And uh, so he was very nervous. I'm like, well, why don't, you know what? Why don't we say it's not real? We'll say it's fact or fiction. We're not taking a stance on it. And uh, he said, okay. And um, I was in a meeting with my boss at the time, Bob Bain, doing marketing on it, which is a marketing meeting. And uh, he had never done this before. And he said to the group, I just want everybody to know, this is Mike's project. I have nothing to do with this project. And I realized that uh, he wasn't being nice. He just was scared to death of it. And um, we went out and we got, um, you know, I figured uh, we would go get like experts. So we got Stan Winston, who at the time was the number one makeup artist in Hollywood and said, I don't know if it's real, but whoever did it did a really good job. We went to Cyril Wecht, who is known as the uh, forensic um, expert that did the JFK, when JFK died, same thing. I don't know if it's real, but whoever's doing it did a, looks like a real autopsy, good job. And so I'm like, this is great, that was enough for me. So I put it on, fact or fiction, um, it was a smash, um, uh, just a little side story. So this alien did not have genitalia. <laughs> but they made me digitize it anyway. <laughs> And I'm like, but there's nothing there. And they're like, but maybe people will think they see shows. I'm like, okay. I use that in the future for many shows I did in these specials to make it look like something was there when it wasn't. That's it, it was a really interesting technique. If you digitize something, people think, oh, must, I must be missing something or something must be there. So I use that throughout my career. So I, I sort of learned, even when they made me do stuff, do that. Look, it's brilliant to know that that digitized technique started on an alien. And uh, yes, yeah. it's, it's one of those facts that once learned, there never forgotten. Um, so it was oh, huge. We did, it aired five times. At that point, stood at the biggest special Fox ever had. And then a few years later, I did World's Biggest Hoaxes, Finally Revealed, which included alien autopsy. So I got a whole special Which is a fantastic way to get as much as you can out of an idea. Sure. But around about that time, uh, you were also beginning to take some pretty big live risks, which also led on to experiences elsewhere. Um, and, and one that um, amazed me when I looked at it uh, the other day, which you could still find on YouTube, was the, the jump that you organized across the Grand Canyon? Right, well, so Robbie Knievel, Evil Knievel's son, was jumping then, and we had done two other jumps. We had done a building to building, and I think over a train. And this was our biggest, this was gonna be over the Grand Canyon. And um, it was live ready to go. It sounds just as scary as it looks. If you look it up on YouTube, you'll see it's amazing. Um, and um, this was late April in Arizona, okay? So it should have been sunny out. Instead, it snowed the night before. And I got a call from my, my uh, second Tom, who was there with him, and he said, Robbie will not jump tonight. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We, I have a live television show. He's got to jump. He won't jump. He's not going to jump. He thinks the thing's too slippery. It's too cold, blah, blah, blah. So I didn't know what to do. So I said, well, let's go on and vamp. Because if you've ever seen these jumps, about 95% of the show is talking about it, right? He's getting ready for the jump. And I had a weatherman friend of mine who was the host. It was cold last night. The snow was here. And I said, just vamp, vamp, vamp. And then we had footage ready for the, rig for the special where um, it looks like, you know, we, we put a motorcycle with a dummy on it. And what if it goes wrong? And he fell off, right? You can see him like, we played that 15 times. I said, just vamp as if he's doing it, as if he's doing it, as if he's doing it. 
Then we had to convince Robbie to come out three minutes to go, look at the track. I just can't do it tonight. Like as if he made the decision right then. And it aired and we did, it did a huge number. It was like a 20 show. And we got nasty emails and letters. How dare you? How could you do such a thing? You knew he wasn't gonna go. And then three weeks later, as promised, we did the same special again. The numbers were exactly the same, and this time he jumped. So I got two specials for the price of one. <laughs> but, but it seems to me, you know, in all of these, you're actually formatting these specials more and more as you go. Uh, there was a moment in time in the early 90s when I did 70 specials for Fox Broadcasting. So it was taking up an enormous amount of space, and we were running out of clips. So I started to come up with, yeah, like new ideas, new, new sort of ways to do original concepts of specials. Um, and um, it evolved. And, and what, was the, what was the first show that would, you know, you'd now see as a kind of unscripted format series? So you know, the first show was Guinness Book of World Records, which was exactly what it sounds like, except I made it into my um, gross, edgy version. The first episode, uh, a 300-pound tumor was prominent uh, in the show, and that's what people were talking about, was the world record tumor. Um, but then, what happened was, Survivor hit on CBS, um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire hit on ABC, and that legitimized the format. Uh, and so I started to answer. My answers were with things that were more me. Temptation Island, Joe Millionaire, Simple Life, etc. things that were with a little more edge, Paradise Hotel, and that sort of turned the genre a little bit on its ear. Was the, was the first of those Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire? Was that the very well, that was a special. Oh, right, okay. Uh, we did, I think, which sounds tame now, this is gonna sound tame to everybody, but we did something called Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire, which was, we had a millionaire, um, and he was hidden, so you couldn't see what he looked like, and a pageant of 50 women, remember it was a good 20 years ago, and they were vying to marry him. Um, and uh, it actually, it was my answer to, so who wants to be a millionaire was huge. And I was flying to New York with my wife, going to a wedding in Parsippany, New Jersey. And it was driving me crazy, because I'd never seen, a, there hadn't been a primetime game show in America in 20 years. And it was every night, every night, every night. It was making, I'm very competitive. And so I got there and I'm watching the wedding and I'm thinking about the show and I'm uh, thinking, what else do people want? They wanna get married. That's what I came up with. Who wants to marry a millionaire? And then I thought, I have to up it, multi-millionaire. Um, and so at the end of the show, he picks a girl and uh, they actually got married on stage. Everything was great. That was the actual front page of the New York Times, not the entertainment section, the front page, it was so big. It beat Who Wants to Be a Millionaire the Night? And then everything went to shit. Um, it turned out that, um, A, very questionable whether he was a millionaire. <laughs> um, and in fact, I think there had been some math done that if he worked for the next 20 years at his current job and didn't spend anything, he might have made a million dollars. Then, this is the first time people, this was so early on, we weren't really, as you guys all know, we weren't vetting people yet, really. We weren't seeing their backgrounds, but we had vetted them. Um, this was actually with Mike Fleiss, who's the creator of The Bachelor, who did, he did that after this. And um, uh, he had vetted them with a company called 007 on the internet. And uh, it turned out that, um, that 
came out later that within a few days that he had a restraining order against him from a former girlfriend. And that led to a, and it was nine years ago and our background check went to seven years, whatever. And the world collapsed for two weeks. I thought I was going to lose my job and it was, it came close. Um, we were, it was the first time and probably really the only time I've ever been part of like a tabloid storm. And, um, we have a news show called Dateline in uh, NBC and I was downstairs uh, with my wife and it was really, really, really bad. It was maybe two days in. And I heard on Dateline them say, the special that brought down a network. And I'm like, oh my God, and it was awful. So, um, but I learned something. Here's what I learned. So you try to learn something if you survive it, right? If you can survive it. So within a few days, First of all, the numbers were huge, as I said, so the big rating smash. And um, uh, my boss at the time, his name I will say, Sandy Gruschow, because he was very difficult to work with, um, he went to the New York Times and said, um, we're, uh, we're out of that business. I would rather um, fail with quality than succeed with garbage. That was very nice, right? And then later, of course, after I got back into the swing, I was thinking, well, he's failing. He learned how to fail with um, quality because he can't seem to succeed with anything else. And so we, um, the, so after the, I got, this is where I was going. So in a, within a few days, um, I got interviewed by every other network who wanted to hire me. Um, it was uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS in that succession because um, they figured I was probably in trouble there. And then I think Fox realized uh, Mr. Chernin saved my job. And then in terms of ideas, you know, you flipped Multimillionaire to Joe Millionaire, which I think I'm right in saying was one of your, your biggest rating hits. That's true. Well, this was, again, a competitive, I'm crazy competitive. So Bachelor was a smash, okay? And my friend Mike Fleiss, who almost got me, in essence, killed by doing Multimillionaire with me, was doing Bachelor. And I'm like, what can we do? What can we do as a twist, a twist? And actually, um, one of my coworkers, Sabrina, is here with me, who we were sitting at a... Um, at a restaurant, and uh, I'm thinking, what can we do as a twist? What can we do as a twist? And my first instinct was to have, he was really a rich bachelor acting poor. She said, what if he's poor, but he's acting rich? Um, and I think I said, that'll work. We'll just be lying to these women for, sorry, for, for four weeks. They'll think he's, a, and then we'll see who's, um, you, know, you, know, you know, in it for the money uh, and who's in it for love at the end. And of course, that seems, I know it seems like you've seen a thousand of those now, but that was the first one. And that, even with American Idol, that was the biggest smash Fox ever aired. Still, the finale still stands today, as it says in there, um, as the biggest entertainment program ever to air on Fox Broadcasting. It was 40 million viewers in, at the finale. And then, and then we should actually, we should move on to Idol, because sure. if we're talking about big sure. numbers, it was there. Now, you know, I think there are several different kind of versions of how Idol came about. I think, you know, almost everybody who's ever been involved with it actually yes. created it. That's and right. And bought it. How did Idol actually come about? Success has many, many, many fathers, and most of them are English or Australian. Um, but I'm going to tell you the real story. You're going to hear the real story now. So... Um, Simon Fuller, it, it was very soon after 9-11, maybe a month, and Simon Fuller and an agent called Alex Hartley um, came from CAA came into my office, it was just me, um, and um, Simon was pitching this talent show. And we were looking for something, you know, sort of 
good, a good feeling show because of, uh, of 9-11 at that time, etc. And um, aspirational. And I, I, there had been two shows that had already aired. Um, one was called um, Pop, no, Pop Stars. And the other one was called Making the Band. And they both aired in the US and, they, and, and around here too, I think. And they were fine. And I liked them until, like in Making the Band as an example, they got to Making the Band. And then the rest of the show bored me. I liked the audition process. And what he was pitching was one long audition. And in his mind's eye, it was gonna be a, a girl and a guy at the end, and there'll be billboards and who would win. And the way he pitched it, with the passion that he pitched it, I saw it. And I thought, this is great. And I went to my boss directly at that time, Gail Berman, and I said, I think we've got something here with this, uh, what they're calling Pop Idol, had not aired in the UK yet. Um, and we were negotiating and negotiating. And then as we were negotiating, it started airing in the UK. And of course, everybody here knows it was an extraordinary smash here. Um, and, um, but we were already basically done the deal. And then at some point, Rupert Murdoch's daughter, Liz, uh, said to her dad, um, you guys, this pop idol is really big. We should be doing it here. And then he, was, he went to Chernin, who said, we're already doing it. And that's really how it came to be. Um, and then we, you know, I knew we had to get Simon Cowell out here because um, I could tell that he was the star of the show. And what made it so different for me was not just the audition thing and not the phone calls, but the, the mean judge, the frank judge, because all the other shows that had come before it, everybody was polite and nice, even if you were bad. And I knew that that was gonna be the sort of the, the thing that swung it over. But even then, we were fought inside the company. Um, he's too mean, uh, little girls are gonna like him, that's gonna, I'm like, well, he's the whole show, we've gotta do it that way. Um, and um, it turned out to be, to be quite frank with you all, a bigger smash than, you know, in a million years, as much as I had had success at that point, I never saw something like that was gonna hit. And Sandy Grushell, the aforementioned not so great boss, um, actually said to Gail and I, um, well, it definitely isn't a game changer, and maybe it'll appeal to young girls. And then he went off to Hawaii um, when it premiered. What's so interesting about the way you work is people know you for big ideas, but you have an amazing attention to detail. And you literally had to, didn't you, kind of direct Simon Cowell into being that person. There was like a moment where you decided to change it, I think. Oh, my God. Well, that was, yeah. You're talking about, now Nigel always brings the story up, that... We had a moment where we were still sort of playing with the show a little bit, and we were in the early audition process. And I wanted the, like, like pre-Hollywood week, we didn't even have that yet. And I wanted Simon to go in and actually verbally go in and tell someone, you're out, like walk into like one of the, like the room. And we did it, and even we thought it was too harsh, and uh, we backed Simon off. Uh, but, he, but I'll give Simon credit, he's willing to do anything he wanted. He, there was nothing he wouldn't do, so it was great. Fantastic. And of course, that was, I mean, you know, part of the beginning of your support for all sorts of UK talent. I mean, there's an amazing That's true. amount of UK talent. And we'll come on in a minute to talk about Michael McIntyre and the wheel. But I mean, Gordon, Kat Dealey, um, which is lovely for people here from the UK, that they've had such success on your shows. No, the, you know, um, you guys produce great hosts. Uh, you really do. And fronters. Um, the... You know, when I was out here doing a ripoff, sometime I was known for doing a copying or borrowing other ideas. Um, and I did it, it didn't matter. American Idol was the most ripped off idea on the planet. I just figured you had to do things. So I was out here doing a 
another version of The Apprentice with Branson. Uh, it was my first time in London, and someone said, you have to go over to what was called Granada then, which became ITV eventually, and said, uh, you gotta see this Hell's Kitchen they're doing. Now, the Hell's Kitchen I saw was kind of Big Brother-ish. It was almost day and day. It was, um, you know, um, celebrities. It was very different. But I could see Gordon was a star, um, and immediately called um, Arthur Smith in the States and said, we're doing a restaurant show. Uh, this guy's amazing. And we brought him out, and uh, he was amazing. He was, that's what I always say about this, Simon Cowell learned the character. Underneath, he's kind of a different person when you meet him, okay? Um, but he learned, and if you watch BGT now or AGT now, he's a much softer version of what he was doing then. Uh, Gordon Ramsay was not doing a character. When, the show we, when we were doing Hell's Kitchen and he was yelling at people, that was all real, and it was crazy. Um, and when I, when I brought, I, so I figured I had another sort of cooking Simon Cowell. When I brought him out, um, he says the word fuck a lot. Fucking this, fucking that. And that was part of his character. And um, my bosses wanted me to get him to say friggin'. And I said, I'm not telling Gordon Ramsay to say friggin'. It's not who he is. Trust me, it's going to be fine. Then they wanted me to go with silence instead of bleeps. So every time he said fucking or something like it, I had to go to silence. I tried that. And I'm like, it sounds terrible because he does it like a hundred times in an episode. So I went out and um, I would say that if there was a Guinness Book of World Records for it, that is by far the most bleeped television program in, in America, and it still is. Fantastic. And with all that success at Fox, um, you pick your moment and you move to Warner Brothers yes. where you've done other extraordinary things. What, what made you make that move? Because it wasn't like it wasn't working. No, I had been at Fox for 18 years um, and had done a, had a lot of success. Um, I'm going to be on, really honest. Here's what happened. American Idol was the number one television show in that country for a decade. But not by a little, by a lot. It was like, the, by its third year, the second biggest show was probably 30 or 40% less viewers. It was enormous. And so Fox was riding that high for a very long time, where we would be last place in September through um, December. And then in January, within a month of, of Idol starting, we'd shoot to first place for the year. That's how big of a deal it was. It was basically like the Super Bowl every year. But like all things, it started to come down. And as it came down, even though it was still doing big numbers, my job became very difficult because instead of making new television shows, thinking of new ideas, it was how can we fix the show? Now, Idol wasn't broken, it was old. It was just aging, like all shows eventually do. You know, it, it, even, like I always say, the Titanic eventually sinks, right? And so my job became, and then everybody who had an opinion, everybody who thought it was to this or to that, now their voices were being heard. Um, there's too many stories. There's not enough stories. The judges are too mean. We shouldn't do the funny bits at the front. And the show is becoming watered down and watered down. And I saw them. They, they offered me a three, another three-year deal, and I saw my future, which was fixing something that couldn't be fixed because it wasn't broken. It was just old. And at that time, Peter Roth, who was my boss um, at uh, Fox during when I was just doing those specials and who literally accepted any special. I didn't matter what it was. What else he got? That was attack three? Let's do it. He didn't care. And so he, he moved over to Warner Brothers 15 years before that, very well known for, you know, all the Chuck Lorre shows and everything sort of he accomplished over there. And he had just inherited 
these three divisions that were all unscripted, uh, cable, one, one did cable, one did um, like network television like Bachelor, and the other one did syndication or first run, so talk shows like Ellen. And um, I was actually thinking of going out on my own, but because it was him and because it was sort of reaching out, I thought the timing was right, so I, I left, which is unusual for me. I like to be very grounded. Yeah, but, but, and you've, you've carried on creating some fantastic shows. Was Little Big Shots the, the, the first big one from, um, from I think, Wallace? yes, so we had, obviously, you know, we take care of the Bachelor franchise there, and we do the voice there, but the first show that sort of came out of um, the whole cloth, in essence, Ellen DeGeneres used to do a segment in her show, pretty simple, where she would talk to little kids, and she would, but they had to be really talented, and then she would let them perform. And almost the minute I got there, I'm like, this would be an amazing uh, primetime show. We should sell it. She was very busy at the time, didn't want to host anything then. And so I waited, got Steve Harvey, who's brilliant. I knew would be great at it. And yet that was our first big hit from, the net, from Warner Brothers and then you know, traveled around the world pretty well. And, and you've also been, uh, of late, you know, looking at the Warner's catalog and then building some pretty high-profile specials out of it like Friends, and I, I, I think we all love the shot of you on the, on the set of Friends. So uh, fun. In, in the yeah, uh, that must have been quite something to pull off. Well, I'm a huge fan of that show. I think almost everybody is. And um, when, I came, when I came to Warner Brothers, it was the 20th anniversary of that show. And I was like, we gotta get this done, and I, why aren't we doing this, you know? And I'd done many reunions in my career. I'd done a MASH reunion, a Married with Children reunion, and they always work when you do them right. And um, Peter said, the talent doesn't want to do it. The executive producers, Bray Kaufman Crane, they're never interested. You're never going to get it done. So I tried, 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 tried. And then about five years in, it was the 25th anniversary, and I started to try again. And at that point, HBO Max was, they were contemplated or becoming a thing. And for some reason, this time, Kevin Bright was sort of interested. And then he got one of the cast members, which was David Schwimmer, sort of interested. And then it was a year and a half of negotiating. Um, I don't want to get into detail, but they made quite a lot of money for that special. Uh, as you probably have heard the lore of them negotiating their own, like they would only negotiate as a team when they were doing Friends and they got the same thing happened. So the, the nice thing about them is they really love each other, truly do. That's great. It also means every decision that is made has to be unanimous between the six of them, which was very difficult, but I, so we pulled it off on the 27th and a half anniversary, which was pretty good. And they still look decent. I was thrilled to do it. Uh, well, it was a brilliant, a brilliant show. Bringing what you're doing up to date, I mean, we're sitting here now literally a week or so away from the launch of The Wheel. Yeah. Uh, which um, is a show that's traveling around the world as a huge hit here with Michael McIntyre. Um, Tell me a bit about how that's come about, because if I'm right, it's, it's going to be actually a primetime strip. Yeah, they decided. It's a big, big thing, isn't it? Something we haven't, uh, really, we haven't done in America in primetime. Gosh, I mean, it's got to be 15 years. A Deal or No Deal uh, was obviously a huge success around this time of year. So NBC came to me about three weeks ago and said, do you, what do you think of stripping it over two weeks, uh, over Christmas, basically? And I think it's a good idea if you promote it to make a two-week event out of it. Um, we saw the show when it premiered, was it a year ago, December? Maybe it was even longer than that. And immediately, I know it was a smash here immediately. I didn't know Michael McIntyre. Um, he, I know he is huge here. I'm, meeting, I'm actually having lunch with him tomorrow. And he's hysterical, but he's not unknown in America. So we bought the show immediately. Um, NBC picked it up within a day of us buying it. Um, and it's very clever. 
And they, of course, as a natural course of events, you guys have been through this, I'm sure, but they wanted us an American celebrity to host it. Problem with game shows is every celebrity thinks they can host it, and as you all know, it's a skill. Um, and if you're not good at it, uh, it, it could be a huge failure. Even if you're a big star, it's, a, it's an actual skill. And so we worked on them for months and finally convinced them to let us use Michael. Uh, and I think it was an extraordinarily wise decision because he is, it's in his blood, that show. He helped, he created that show. He's, you know, he is really funny. And that show, what I really like about it is there's lots of game shows on in primetime right now in, in America because they're cheap, they're easy to do, but most of them are revivals of shows that run in the 70s, I would say, the vast majority. This show is unique in that it's, half panel, really, and half game, um, and really all comedy. So um, knock wood, wood, we're hoping it's a big smash for, for NBC and for us, um, but I'm, I mean, I'm thrilled to be uh, doing it. But it's very exciting, because it plays not only to picking up a great show. It's original, but, I mean, but, it really feels original. Yeah, but actually, you've gone and influenced their schedule, haven't you? Because, I mean, it's, it's, you're able to actually make it a schedule innovation as well as a, as a show innovation. Yeah, yeah, well, again, I gotta give NBC credit, they came up with this idea, and I'm like, I, love the, that sort of two-week event thing, maybe it'll, hopefully that'll help people to catch on, because uh, it's, it's a little rule-heavy, but when you watch it after about two episodes, you totally get it, and so hopefully people will really catch on. Uh. So that, that kind of classic question around about now in a, in, a, in a conversation, which is the state of the industry. Um, it's, there's so much competition in it's Unscripted. True. You know, are there new ideas left, or just versions of new ideas? It's true. Now, I don't know what you're experiencing. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm sure you've heard enough depressing talk about this kind of thing. So I think that, here's what I think. It is always in a buyer's mind, because I did it for 18 years, to fall on something they know, right? A version of something, um, something that feels familiar, uh, a reboot, and um, that was always true. It's going on right now in a crazy way, because it's a simple vision. The problem with that is, you never get a hit. You're never gonna get a smash. You're never gonna get a home run. And, and in American parlance, and to not take those swings is insane. It's okay to have some of that stuff, but I would encourage everyone to realize you're gonna get told no a lot. You're gonna, you know, because I'm not on the sales side now. You're gonna, it's funny, they want, they'll tell you, right? You've heard this, it's too much like Show X. And yet, you'll see them pick up four shows that are just like that show, right? Some version of the show. But what's been the only real big smash hit in America in the last five years was Mass Singer, which was, yeah, okay, it's a, it's a little um, similar format to a singing show, but unusual, unique. And a lot of people, I remember hearing a lot of people say, they didn't think it was gonna work. Oh, it's goofy, it's dumb, it's this. And so, you know, I guess I would encourage everybody to say, Yes, it's a harder industry to sell to right now. Yes, they're getting even cheaper, on, although we've, if you're in the reality business, you're always doing things at least relatively inexpensively. But please, please, please keep trying to take big swings because it's gonna hit again. Every time a cycle, I've been told, no one's doing relationship shows anymore, no one's doing game shows anymore, no one's doing, and then five minutes later, something hits and the cycle's back up. And that's the one thing about, the nice thing about what we do, which is that Unscripted is this big umbrella and nothing's ever dead. There's always a way to bring it back. Love Island here, you know, um, Love is Blind on Netflix, you know, but up to that point, there was no new relationship shows. So 
I just keep, I mean, I know it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit simplistic and I know it's a hard business and trust me, I know that, but boy, just try to take big swings and new ideas. So I promise you something will hit and the big reward will come from that. Mike Darnell speaking with Mark Rowland at C21's Content London recently. There'll be more from the event on our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday and in the podcast next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.